0: The way I think about it is positioning is the foundation of almost everything we do in marketing and sales. If you came to me and said, April, write us some messaging, I'd say, okay, great. Who's it for? And what's our differentiated value? And who do we compete against? Why, how are we different? We would have to have that defined first.
1: Hi, welcome back to SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B2B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Groper, president at Blast Media, and I will be both your host and bartender today. I had a conversation with April Dunford, who is a positioning consultant for B2B brands and the author of two books, one that just came out recently called Sales Pitch, How to Craft a Story to Stand Out and Win. I was first introduced to April at a conference where she was talking about category creation and positioning, something that is near and dear to our clients' hearts. And her words really stuck with me, and it's something that I've carried through with me through the last five years or so. So I'm very excited to have her on the call today. Some of you may be listening, saying, my positioning's great. We don't have a positioning problem, don't you? Do you? She's going to unpack that for us. What are some of the triggers? Some of the signals that you may need to refresh, update, or change your positioning? May not be a sales problem. May not be a product problem. So grab a drink and join me as I speak with April Dunford. Hey, April. Welcome to SAS Howful. Hey, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, it is nice to see you. I uh, did have a chance to see you in person several years ago. We figured out before we hit record that it was in Tucson at an empowered CMO event where you were talking about positioning and boy, we got into a pretty robust discussion about with the attendees, really more about category creation. And we'll dive into that a little bit because there's something that you said that stuck with me that I have used a thousand times since I've heard you say it, but it's nice to have you. This was way before you even had dreams of writing a second book. You've just released your second book called Sales Pitch, How to Craft a Story to Stand Out and Win. April, did you ever think that you were going to be a published author?
0: No. Oh, God, no. I often say, like, if my high school English teacher could see me now, they'd be laughing their head off. I actually went to school for engineering. Like, what am I doing writing a book about anything? I was trying to solve my own problem. So I had been doing a lot of positioning work. And it really frustrated me that there were books out there that talked about the concept of positioning and what it was and what it wasn't and books that had examples, but there was no how-to book that was going to help me as a VP marketing that was trying to actually do positioning. So I had kind of, over the years, figured out my own way to get it done. And I'm like, I don't know if this is the best way to do it. I don't know if this is the only way to do it, but it works for me. Maybe it'll work for you. So my thinking in the first book was to just get that down on paper. And for anybody that wanted to, you know, an opinion about here's one person's way of doing it, at least they could buy that book and figure it out. So that's what the first book was all about. And then the second book evolved out of a thing that I thought was a problem we had solved. So my my book just focused on positioning. Here's how you break it into pieces. Here's how do you actually work through a positioning exercise with a cross functional team. Here's how you get it done. And at the end, people are always asking me, Well, what should we do to test the positioning?" And I'm like, oh, Yeah, so how do we do it? And so, what everybody wants to do is go write messaging. I mean, that's the main thing you want to do with it. But what I found is if we went straight to messaging, Often we were testing a lot of things outside of positioning to design of landing pages and copy and look and feel and all that stuff. And were we driving the right traffic there? And so I thought a better way to do it would be to take the positioning, turn it into a sales pitch, and then we would pitch it to customers and see how it lands. And then we get a lot of extra signal. We know for a fact that it's a qualified prospect so we can control for the audience. And then we can see like, where are customers getting excited? Where are they getting confused? And is this working in an actual sales situation? And if we can validate it there, then we can feel good. Yep, this works. Now we have a sales pitch. We can take the sales pitch and the positioning and use both of those things to go write the messaging. And so I just assume people know how to build the sales pitch, right? We've been doing that since the dawn of time. So that's not my problem to solve. People have their own way of doing that. So they'll do it however they do it. But then I find out I've worked with 250 companies and none of them had a sales pitch structure that made any sense really, or that they were even attached to. Like they'd say, yeah, well, we have a sales pitch. I don't know where it came from. It's been around since the dawn of time. Every once in a while we tweak it. And so I thought, well, how do we actually build a good sales pitch? There must be a methodology for doing that. So then I went looking for that and that didn't exist either. And I had a pitch methodology that I'd been using from way back, like the original version of it I learned when I was at IBM. And then when I left IBM and went to another startup, I startupified that pitch structure. And then I've kind of been using an evolving version of that pitch structure ever since. So I thought, well, I guess I'll just write this down. And same thing. Like, I don't know if this is the best pitch structure in the world, but it probably works better than the thing you're using now, which is generally something that nobody really likes. Here I am with book two, but that's it. I'm done.
1: And so the next problem arises, we shall see. No, I'm really old
0: now, and I don't think there's any more books left in here, I think. Never say never,
1: but that is super frustrating when, yes, you have a problem, you go read a book, and it's all, you know, theories, it's giving examples but you leave, you're like, no, 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 it's not over, is it? It's over? Like, you're like, oh, but how? How do I do it? How do I do that? I
0: find this so frustrating. So many marketing books in particular they're just like these idea books and you're supposed to do whatever you do with it, which sometimes you just need the idea to kind of wake you up to thinking about something in a different way. But a lot of times I'm like, no, the idea doesn't do me any good.
1: <laughs> it's good about the word too. It, ha- it has how in it, but it'd be like how to think about it. And I'm like, I gotcha. I don't know. I want to know how to do, not how to think about it. I blame publishers
0: for this for the most part, because when I came with my first book, They were like, that seems really narrow. Like, why don't you just bring it up a level and it'll appeal to more people? And I was a bit like, I don't think I care if it appeals to more people.
1: (laughs) Obviously, publishers do. Do you remember where you were the first time you saw your book, Out in the Wild? The first time I saw my book, Out in the Wild,
0: I was flying to California and I had been upgraded to business class. So I was sitting in business class and the guy got on the plane right beside me no out. way. Yep. Pulled it out of his briefcase. And I was like, oh,
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, how did you feel? Tell me, how did you feel when you thought that? Like a freaking rock star, let me tell you. I
0: was like, oh, my God, there's a guy. Should I say something? Should I not say something? So I did this whole thing where I was like, you know, I waited until they're bringing the meal because nobody likes the person that spontaneously talks to you on the airplane. So they bring the meal and the guy puts the book down. And I said, this is actually true. I said, how you like that book? And he says, pretty good. Like, I don't know if I really get it yet, but pretty good. And then I was like, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> so I didn't say anything. And then we ate. And then he started talking to me about something. Like he was like, what are you out in the valley for? And I said, I'm going out to speak at a conference. And he says, oh, what do you do? And I said, well... <laughs> and then I copped to it. <laughs> so actually... He says, oh, he says, no, it's very good. And then he just totally backpedaled. No, it's very good. No, it's very good. I'm really enjoying it. Really enjoying it. Yeah, That
1: is incredible. The person right next to you. I love that. As I told you, you stuck in my mind about positioning and specifically category creation. Before we dive deep into a couple of things, I want to level set first because there's positioning, there's branding, there's messaging, and they get all thrown in together, incorrectly so. So how do you define positioning and specifically its distinction from messaging branding?
0: Right. So in my opinion, positioning defines how we are the best in the world at delivering something like some value that a well-defined segment of the market cares a lot about. So the way I think about it is positioning is the foundation of almost everything we do in marketing and sales. Like if you came to me and said, April, write us some messaging, I'd say, okay, great, who's it for? And what's our differentiated value? And who do we compete against? Why, how are we different? We would have to have that defined first. And so those piece parts are messaging. So I think messaging is something we do with the positioning after we have it. I think the same way about branding. People have really, really different definitions of branding. I bump into a lot of people that talk about brand positioning and that really bugs me because I feel like there's positioning, there's branding, those things are really, really separate. But most of the time when people talk about brand positioning, they're either talking about positioning straight up with no branding or they're talking about branding But they've stretched the definition of branding that it literally means everything we're doing in marketing, basically. (laughs) So in my world, branding is more about brand tone of voice, iconography, what we're doing with colors and fonts and things that sort of represent the feel of the brand. It's not so much about the words we use or the concepts that contribute to the brand, that, I think, is more positioning. So who do we compete against? How are we different? What's the value we can deliver? No one else can. What's our definition of a good fit prospect? What's the market we intend to win? That's positioning. And then once we have that and we say, oh, we're going after security professionals that look like this and our differentiated is this, my branding for security professionals is going to look and feel very different from if I say, Oh, well, we're going after daycare operators, (laughs) you you know, in the United States. Well, that's going to look very different than my security professionals branding, like colors, fonts, everything's going to tone a voice. All of that's going to seem different. So I kind of need positioning first before
1: I do those other things. And you've worked with many, many companies, all shapes and sizes on positioning. Are you most often finding that that is being put into the marketing responsibility and you're dealing with the CMO or, or that function, or are you most often dealing with the, the CEO? I guess secondarily, where should it live?
0: Yeah. So right now for my business, it's about half and half who calls me. It's either the CMO or it's the CEO. If they've got a rockstar CMO, like the better the CMO, the more likely it is the CMO is going to call me. But sometimes you'll have, particularly in smaller companies, Sometimes the CMO's scared to call me because the CEO doesn't really get this stuff and they're worried the CEO is going to go, wait a second, like I hired you. That's why I hired you.
1: Like, why don't you just go fix this? Right. Or be pissed that they're, you're calling their baby ugly. Or that.
0: <laughs> a lot of that. But I do get a lot of calls from very experienced, good CMOs that have the trust of their CEO come to me and say, look, we've been working on this for a while, but we got big personalities in the room. This company has been around for a while and there's a bit of positioning baggage and we really need someone from the outside to come in and help us get out of our own way on this. I get a lot of calls from experienced CMOs like that. The CEO often calls me and usually it's this. The CEO will call me and say, if I pitch this to a prospect, it's perfect. We close every deal. But I walk over there and I listen to how those sales guys are pitching it and that ain't it. (laughs) <laughs> and I look what's at our web page, and I read our messaging and it's kind of there, but it's not really there. And so I kind of want to get the whole team together and make sure we're all talking, you know, singing the same song. And a lot of times they're like, when they say singing the same song, I mean, singing my song. <laughs> but often what we end up with is something that's quite different from that. But at the end, I think the big thing that everybody appreciates is we have everybody in agreement and alignment. So sales, marketing, the CEO, product, customer success, everybody agrees on where we're at at the end, which makes it really easy for people to go and go execute on it. It's when there's misalignment that this stuff gets really, really hard. Like CEO doesn't agree with marketing or marketing doesn't agree with sales or CEO doesn't agree with sales. Then we have a big problem. Right. Right
1: what are some of those triggers that indicate it's time for new positioning? And I'm not saying that your positioning is wrong necessarily. Sometimes it is. Other times it needs to evolve. But what are some of those triggers? So
0: there's a handful of things. So I'll give you the signs that it might be wrong. And then I'll give you the triggers you might see and say, hey, maybe we should go look at it now. So I was a repeat vice president of marketing for 25 years-ish before I became a consultant. And towards the end, positioning was really my thing. So CEOs would hire me thinking, you know, the positioning might be wrong. And so we're going to hire you to come in and fix it. I show up and what everybody wants me to do is just go build lead generation campaigns. Like, go, 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 put your foot on the gas, make the revenue go like this. And I was always afraid of pouring too much water into the leaky bucket before we got the positioning sorted out. So my trick was, the first thing I would do is I would go sit on sales calls. So all the companies I worked for were B2B, Enterprise, so there'd be a sales team. I go sit on sales call and weak positioning on a first substantive sales call with a prospect sounds like this. Your rep comes in, they set up, they're having a little banter at the beginning and then the reps moving into the pitch part of the pitch and they get maybe five, 10 minutes into it and the customer will just be making this face like, or they'll be just back it up. But back it up. Like, can you just back it up and go back to the beginning? You would not believe how often you hear that exact phrase. Just back it up, back it up. Like go back to that slide you had before. And then they've got this super confused look on their face. You know, and the rep will back it up and do it again. So there's this confusion about like, what is it again? What do you do? And how is it? And, and what? And somehow the rep needs to break through that. Or you'll get the second sign, which is the customer will say, oh yeah, I get it. You're just like Salesforce. So they're comparing you to things that you just aren't. Or the, almost the worst one is you'll get towards the end, the customer will be like, I get it. I get what you do. I don't get why you pay for it. Like, why wouldn't you just do it in a spreadsheet? Or couldn't we just do that with our accounting package? Like, it kind of does that now. So they get what you are. They just don't really understand the value. And so if I start hearing that, then what I would do is I would go have lunch with the VP sales and I'd be like, okay, I'm new here. I'm stupid. You know, I don't know anything but here's what I'm hearing on the sales calls. Do you hear that too? And nine times out of 10, if I'm hearing it, the VP sales knows it's happening. So the VP sales says, "Oh God. Yeah, it's terrible. We get that all the time. And then I'll say, well, you know what? In marketing, we often see this as a sign of weak positioning. So then I explain what positioning is. And then I'm like, I don't know if the positioning is bad here or not, but have we ever looked at it? Like maybe it would make sense for us to get together as a team and just kind of walk through it because maybe we could fix that. And usually I can convince the VP sales. If it's a problem, I can convince the VP sales. If I can't, then maybe it's not a positioning problem. Maybe it's something. But then I could go to product and have the same conversation like, hey, I was over listening in sales. And do you find when you're out with customers, like they compare us to these guys that we don't actually compete with or whatever. And then usually product will say yes. And then I go to the CEO and say, okay, I'm not saying the positioning's bad. I don't know. I'm, too, I'm new here. I don't know nothing. But... I'm hearing this stuff in sales. I think it makes sense for us to look at it. And here's how I would do it. I'm going to get this cross-functional team together. We're going to work through this process. And usually the CEO will say, what does John in sales think about it? And I'd say, oh gosh, I don't know. Let's call John. But I already got John. (laughs) I already know. (laughs) So then we call John and John says, oh yeah, you know, I've been hearing that too. So that's how we get everybody together. And then we run through the process. So usually I would try to do that at the beginning. If I had any... Question about whether or not the positioning was good or bad. I knew if I could get a cross functional team, we could fix it in a couple of days. So let's get everybody together. We'll fix it in a couple of days. Once we had that there, then the idea was we would assume that the positioning was okay, but not okay forever because your competitors are changing and you're changing and everything in the market's changing. So I would have a every six month check in where we get the same cross functional group together. And we would work through a really fast version of the workshop and say, okay, competitive alternatives, has anything changed here? Are we seeing competitors in sales that we didn't see six months ago? And then we would look at differentiated capabilities, like maybe a competitor has caught up with us, or maybe we've done a new release and we've extended our capabilities. And so has that changed enough that it would change our differentiated value? If it has, then we need to go back and look at the positioning again. So we would do that every six months, even if nothing was happening, just to make sure that there wasn't something weird going on in sales that we didn't know about. The other time we would call a positioning like emergency meeting, is if something big happened in the market that we thought might have a big impact on the positioning. So for example, I worked at this company and we had this positioning, which was great in my opinion, and it was a database and we were really aligned with this open source database system, MySQL, so we had this positioning that really you know, leaned into the MySQL stuff. And then MySQL gets acquired by Sun. And we're like, oops, we better have the emergency positioning meeting on that one. So we get the gang together. We look at it. We made an adjustment too. It was a big change, but it was pretty important. So we did the change. And then that worked really good for about eight months. And then Sun got acquired by Oracle. And not only that... But the first thing Oracle said, people were asking questions about MySQL and Oracle was like, I don't know, maybe we'll kill it. And we're like, oh, no. (laughs) And then we had to go. It was like (laughs) emergency. So then we had to get the gang together and do a redo on the positioning. So a lot of companies came to me when COVID hit. Uh, because that was obviously a big, big change of affairs. And some companies did a change in positioning. Some companies had sections of their market that were closed, basically. And so no business was going to happen over there. But other sections of their market, like people that served healthcare or emergency response stuff or whatever. So part of your business is closed and the other part is on fire. And so some companies did an adjustment on their positioning to really run at the part of the business that was still alive when COVID hit. I also did a bunch of work with companies after things started to open back up to kind of, you know, reverse focus on things that were now booming that weren't previously booming in the previous two years. So sometimes you'll get some outside forces kind of thing happen and you'll want to look at the positioning then and make sure that you don't need to do an adjustment on it.
1: And what I like about that approach when you're new and you go and you talk to sales, you talk to product is you're not insinuating that there's a sales problem, there's a product problem. It's like y'all are doing the right thing. It's just, this might be broken over here. You get everybody's buy-in. We get asked quite often. I mean, we are a PR agency for B2B SaaS companies. Can you help us with our positioning or can you do our positioning? And you know, I'm like, no, it's a very specific process, skill set. There are individuals like you who do it. There are whole companies that that is what they do. It's this always just this casual, like, can you us start positioning? Or, and we're like, literally always saying, no. Nope. And actually,
0: I even feel like I can't do it for you either. Like, they will call me and say, can you just do the positioning for us? And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> like I'm actually there with a process pulling it out of them. This is something that requires really deep understanding of the market, really deep understanding of customers. Even if you hired me as a vice president of marketing, it would take me months to get up to speed to the point where I could actually do that without significant input from other parts of the business. And even then, I would want that input from other parts of the business. So in the work that I do, it's less about me talking to everybody and then going in back in my little room and making the magic positioning happening. It's more like getting a cross-functional team together, coming with a process that for as much as we can takes the opinions out of it. And then I'm there to pull it out of them basically, because I think that's the best way to get it done. I think thinking somebody from the outside could come in and fix your positioning, like that seems bonkers to me.
1: (laughs) Well, and to me, that's just a red flag because I'm like, well, if you're questioning your positioning and you're needing help with positioning and messaging, like now might not be the best time to make a strategic PR investment is what are we doing? Like here
0: we are trying to build messaging on a thing and there's no clear answers. What does a best fit customer look like? What's your differentiated value? How do we build messaging if we don't have clear answers for that stuff? Like that's
1: really hard. The other thing that we get asked, which brings me back to when I originally saw you speak was the category creation because we a lot of prospects come to us and more clients say, you know, we're creating a new category. How can you help us create a new category? And my answer is based on something you had said and I'm paraphrasing here reason new category is created is because there is a new problem that the current category and its players can no longer solve. That is why a new category is created. And if you are going to create a new category, it is pointless to start promoting the name of said new category that means nothing to anyone. You have to identify that problem and start evangelizing the problem that exists. And then now the solution so we get asked, like, can you help us create a new category? It's like, okay, well, I will say this. Well, what is the new problem that exists that the current category doesn't solve that you now are able to solve alone?
0: This kind of stuff drives me bananas. I think that right now there is this idea that, well, I'm in this market and the market's so competitive. So wouldn't it be great if I could just invent a new market and be the only player in there and then I just win? And I'm like, yeah, like I want a pony, but my backyard is really small. Like, I, mean, I wish the Tooth Fairy existed. I, that would be great too. But the majority of the time, it just doesn't make any sense. Like you're coming in and you're saying, well, I've got this amazing thing. It's a flu flummer. And everyone's like, oh, what's a flu flummer? And you're oh, I'm glad you asked.
1: It, there's flumming and there's fluing and it brings the fluing and flumming together. And it's an automated platform. Like, great. So yes, let's start promoting the flu flummer automated platform category. It means nothing, nothing to anybody. No, nothing. No. one. so anyway, that has always stuck with me.
0: I don't believe that companies create categories. I believe that categories emerge and some companies are wise to that. They see that problem early. They see this emerging need and then they build a solution for that. But they didn't actually create the category. They recognized that the category was emerging and then rode that wave to success. You know, I think in the investment community, there's a wish or some kind of magical thinking that if these companies could create this new category, that would be how we get these amazing companies. And often what they're doing is they're looking at companies that are quite big and saying, look at this company, they created this category. So you three guys in a basement could also create this category and it would be amazing. If we look at category creation, however, that's not actually what happens. What generally happens is a new category is emerging and there may be an early company in there that jumps on that and does the hard work of trying to evangelize the problem and develop the category and get the category to this point where people start understanding it and they understand the need for it. And at precisely that moment, what you'll get is tons and tons of venture-backed companies piling into that space because now everybody recognizes this emerging opportunity. And so it is often very hard for the category creator to then hang on to that leadership position in that category, even though they were early. Well, precisely because they were early, because at this point it's been 10 years, their investors are tired and they want their money out. And the new people get the advantage of coming in and just looking at your stuff and copying it and then leapfrogging you and getting ahead. So this is why Facebook exists and not MySpace. This is why Google exists and not Ask Jeeves and all that other crap we used before Google showed up late in the market. If you look at the history of Apple, they very much have a history of being a fast follower in the market. BlackBerry was first in the smartphone market and they took everything that worked and didn't work about the BlackBerry and leapfrogged them. So I think that category creation is a very dangerous game for new companies. And I don't think you should want to do it. I think you either have to do it because there is no category that works for you. The category is truly emerging, and you're gonna attempt to evangelize that category, run with that category, and then be the leader after that. The vast majority of companies that are successful, if we look at tech companies, did not start out as category creators. They, most of them started positioning themselves in an underserved subsegment of an existing category. So if I look at Salesforce, for example, Salesforce started as CRM for SMBs. And their slogan, which was no software, was kind of the point. Like SMBs couldn't do CRM back then because all the CRM was on premise software. So if you wanted CRM, you had to have an IT department. If you're a really small company, then you could use Salesforce even without an IT department because there was no software. And so they were CRM for SMBs up until they were 200, 300 million revenue. And then eventually they started expanding the market beyond that. So often people will point at companies they'll say are category creators, and they actually weren't doing a category creation thing until they were 200, 300, 400 million, and then they were dominating the existing category, which they had crept into. Then they overtook the leader, and then once they overtook the leader, they were smart in trying to expand the borders of the category, make it into something new so that the addressable market was bigger. That is actually much, much more common. At one point, I did this little study because people kept asking me about category creation. So I did this little thing where I went down the NASDAQ, everybody who had gone public in the NASDAQ for the previous five years, and one by one, I went down the companies and I looked at, at the time when they went public, so typically it's $100 revenue or whatever, so you're big, but you're not huge. At the time when you went public, was the company doing a category creation thing or were they positioning in an existing category as a niche play in a substantive segment of an existing category? And 93% were not category creating, they were a niche play in a thing. So if that's good enough for 93% of the people, then maybe that works for you too. And so the other 7% were doing a category creation thing. Now I didn't take it any further. I should have, because even the ones that are doing category creation, often if you dig down to that, they weren't doing that at the beginning, but they started doing that right around the time they went public so the one that i talk about a lot is snowflake you know they were data warehousing in the cloud that's data warehousing that's a market that's existed for a long time the underserved segment was cloud data warehousing very easy to understand we know what data warehousing is we're like imagine data warehousing that was built for the ground up for the cloud really easy to understand And that positioning served them very well up until they were completely dominating that space And then they looked at it and said, well, we don't want to go ahead and dominate the database, not cloud, because there's no growth there. What we actually want to do is dominate any kind of data in the cloud. So they shifted their positioning to being, you know, we're now cloud data. doesn't matter if it's warehousing or a data lake or a database or anything you want to do with data in the cloud. That's us. And you could say that's category creation. It is, but it came on the back of doing very, very well in this sub-segment, which is warehousing.
1: And then we expanded into that. So that's much more common. So on the positioning side, April's first book is the obviously awesome how to nail product positioning. So that is really that, that how-to. And then once you nail that how-to, what do you do next? Do you test it? How do you put it in into practice? And that's where the second book, Sales Pitch, How to Craft a Story to Stand Out and Win comes into play. You talk about a story matrix in the second book. Unpack that for us.
0: When I looked at what people were doing in sales pitches, there's a handful of different things that people are doing. So most Commonly, what I see in software companies is their sales pitch is actually not a pitch. It's a product walkthrough. Like people click on that button that says, Give me a demo. And that's all you're getting, man. You're just getting a demo, just the facts. They'll be like, Okay, here's how we log in. It's like, Why are we showing that? Everybody logs in. <laughs> like, there's nothing differentiating about, about that. And there'll be 15 drop down menus, menus. And we're going to click on every single drop down menu and then go through every feature in there. And there's no real story around it. There's no, how are we different than everyone else? Does everyone have these features? Do just we have these features? What's the value of any of these features? So that is the most common by far is the rep just goes and does that. Sometimes what you'll see is people will do, and I used to do this when I was junior, is the problem solution pitch. So you'd say there's a problem, we have a solution. We're defining the problem in such a general way that it doesn't actually answer the question, why pick us? So, you know, I worked at a database company and the problem was, oh my goodness, there's so much data. Data's increasing exponentially, woo. (laughs) Any one of my competitors could have said that. And then we say, so we're gonna solve that. And then we would show them the feature, feature, feature pitch. Sometimes what you've got in, like on the marketing side of the house, we've been taught hero's journey as a storytelling structure. And I think it works great in certain instances in marketing. I don't think it works well in sales for a bunch of reasons. Like one is, it doesn't give the reps an easy place to do discovery or objection handling or a lot of things that a rep needs to do. The funny thing about a hero's journey is, hero's journey applied to businesses is like, you have the hero and the hero is the customer. And the customer like goes on a a quest (laughs) and they encounter a guide and the guide is us. And then when the guide shows them the way to the promised land and then we help them get to the promised land and help them avoid failure. And so if you read building a story brand is a book that does a really good job of illustrating how you do that for marketing people, but in sales, like sales is the guide and the guide that gives you the plan that the sales pitch is the plan. Nobody's teaching us how to build the plan. <laughs> so, So I don't think any of these existing structures work very well for a sales pitch. So the way I've looked at it is we need to do a couple of things in the sales pitch. First, instead of jumping directly to features, we actually need a little bit of context up front that says, look, we've been in this space for a while and here's what we've learned about the problem. We have an opinion, a point of view on the market, And that's what we would call the problem inside the problem or the problem behind the problem. And then if we think about that, we can then look at all the alternate ways you could solve the problem and say, there's pluses and minuses to this, and then get the customer kind of aligned with our way of looking at the world. And then when we show the demo, the demo is really, here's the value we can deliver. These are the features. This is how we deliver that value through these features. And so those are the two big differences, I think, with the stuff that I'm doing now with the sales pitch stuff is we got to paint a picture of the whole market, position ourselves in that, and then get the customer aligned with the way we look at the market. And then we pitch value, not features.
1: And again, all that can be found in sales pitch, how to craft a story to stand out and win. April, we have a lot of clients who have written books, who are thinking about writing books. When would you advise against it? pretty much all the time (laughs) like I've done it twice and I still say don't do it I I don't know I think that (laughs) books are really
0: hard you know for me I had this idea that I had this methodology and it would be good for two things one it would be good for my business because I would have this book out in the world and anybody reading the book might say hey I've got that problem I should call that lady I also was doing a lot of coffee meetings with Founders of really small companies that could never afford to hire a consultant. And I thought I could just write this down and then I just slide that across and say, Here you go, buddy. You don't even need to buy me a coffee. (laughs) Just read this thing. And I think I got, in some ways, I got lucky. The book came out in 2019. We went into COVID in 2020 and it was a great time to have a book in the market because people were reading a lot of books. Everybody was trapped in their house and I sold a lot of books then. But I don't know, you know, if that book had come out a year later, I wouldn't have been able to go on a speaking tour and do a bunch of things I did to get the book out in the world. So I don't know if it would have been successful at all. I'm not sure. Like, I think you really got to decide what's the point of this book. Like, what do you want the book to do? And then write the book to serve that purpose. But I think a lot of people just want to write a book because they think it would be cool and they think it'll just sell on its own. Like writing
1: the book is actually really easy. Marketing book is quite hard. Right. I would imagine so. Uh, Not something that I have done or considered doing. Uh, So it was curious because I would imagine for everything I've heard and read that it is not easy. But you're saying the actual writing is not, that's not the hard part. And certainly expecting that if you write it, people will buy it, that is not a a realistic expectation. Did you
0: know like the stats on this are terrifying? Something like only 1% of books sells more than 100 copies. 1%. And there's like this little like 0.2% sells more than a thousand copies. It's terrifying. Like the vast majority of books go out and literally nobody buys them. So you're going to write this book and then there's this big effort to get it out. Like it takes a year to produce a book. It's this big effort to get it out and then nobody reads it.
1: Right. (laughs) Or you were sitting on a plane and out they pull a copy of your book. What is surreal? I mean, that's what you think
0: is going to happen. Like, that's what you pray is going to happen. But I don't know. Like, in the, I'll give you an example. In the first year my book was out, I did 52 speaking engagements. Holy cow. Exactly. Holy cow. And think about that. Conference season is really spring and fall. Like nobody has a conference in July and August. So I had many, many weeks where I was doing three, four speaking engagements a week. And I did that for a year. I did probably 200 podcasts. So I really put my foot on the floor because I was like, man, am I going to write this stupid thing? And get it out there. Somebody better read it.
1: Well, get ready. After this podcast episode, we're going to freaking skyrocket. April, let me tell you, this is when it all becomes real for you. This is your moment right now. It's great. And this gets released. Thank you so much. <laughs> this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. Um, I guarantee that those who are listening are examining their own positioning right now and, and now will be their trigger to say, we got to make a change. So I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for the time. Hey, well, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks again to April for joining me on Sass Half Full. It was awesome to connect with her. I have been a fan of her for quite some time. Hopefully, one or two of you took away a little something about your positioning and maybe planted a seed that it's time to re-examine that. And if you haven't listened to a sales call or sales calls, now might be the time. Always appreciate a listen. And until next time, bottoms up.